someone uh, said to me, hey, today our pastor's preaching. I said, well, most weeks one of your pastors is preaching. Uh, But in all seriousness, it's an honor to be here uh, officially as the senior pastor. I'd say regular senior pastor, but if you know me, you know there's no truth to the regular thing. So uh, thank you. Uh, I'm honored to serve you last week as as District Superintendent Winger uh, commissioned me, commissioned us really. Uh, I was moved by your outpouring of support. If you do two things, first of all, take your bulletin and pull out the insert uh, about the vision trip, if you would, please. It has the, the picture of the Middle Eastern children at the top. That's the first thing. And the second thing, uh, when you're done with that, is pull out your Bible and find John chapter 3, if you would. I want to draw your attention to this information about this missions trip. One of the goals we have here at Beulah is to engage and make it possible for, I mean, our, our dream is every Beulah person uh, to participate at some level in missions work. Uh, that for some may mean overseas, and for some that may mean a trip like this, which isn't overseas, uh, but can be just as effective. Perhaps you've heard of Devon Oasis. Uh, it's in the little India part of Chicago, so not that far from home, um, and yet doing missions work like many people overseas. You can read about the trip. Uh, The long and short of it is that at the end of October, we'll be taking what we're calling a vision trip to Devon Oasis, this this, uh, place in Little India, a missionary church mission that works with people of all nationalities. And uh, we're going just for a brief day trip. We're gonna hear about their ministry. We're gonna do some some prayer walking, some guided prayer walking through parts of the neighborhood. And then we're gonna enjoy some uh, uh, some native cuisine, native to India, uh, uh, before we come home. And, and this is the first of what we hope will be many trips in a partnership with Devon Oasis. But we'd love for you to get involved. Uh, really, the only priority is that you have the time to, to dedicate a day, that you have $10 to reserve your seat, and that you be up for the prayer walking that we'll do uh, through the neighborhood. If you want to know more, you can certainly talk to me or to Dawn Rader with her hand in the air here, uh, or any of the other missions board members, and we'd be glad to talk to you about that. I asked, uh, I asked Bob Andrews, a friend of mine who runs Devon Oasis, I said, do you have a, a video that we could use as we kind of talk about this upcoming trip that we're going to take uh, to come and, and minister with you? And he said, unfortunately, we don't. But he said to me uh, just this weekend, he said, we have even better than that. Tonight at um, California Road Missionary Church, which is over by Memorial High School, we'll be doing a baptism for a young lady who accepted Christ. Now, I mean, that's incredible. But what he said next just blew my socks off. He said, this young lady is the only known person from her people group who's following Christ. And she met the Lord through the ministry of Devon Oasis. I'm telling you, ministry is happening in Chicago. (laughs) Now a formerly unreached people group, has a, a Christ has a foothold there. And so we'd encourage you to be part of that. I don't know about you, but hearing that someone accepted Christ um, is incredible. It's miraculous. And then to hear that that person's from an unreached people group and accepted Christ in Chicago, of all places, to me is, I mean, it's, it's miraculous. And, and new birth is always miraculous. Would you agree with that? Amen. And whether we're talking about spiritual rebirth or, or, or I mean, spiritual birth or, or physical birth, when it's new birth, it's miraculous. 
and painful and long and sometimes quite gross, but always beautifully miraculous. And, uh, and this was the truth for, uh, for mine and Sarah's third child. We had had two daughters at, at this point in our marriage, and, and, uh, and when the time was right, we decided that we'd start trying for a third. You see, for generations back on my side of the family, it was all boys. And so when we came along and, and broke the male barrier and had the first grandchild and the, the first granddaughter, we were heroes. Um, but that wore off after a little while, and I decided that I wanted a son. I wanted a little boy to raise. So, so I struck a deal with my wife. I said, here's the deal. We have to have a boy, and so I think we should go until we get a boy. <laughs> and she said, time out. I know the way your family does things. There's like no girls for generations. Maybe now it's going to turn and there'll be no boys. I'm not agreeing to that. And I said, okay, fine. Let's, let's, I'll, I'll offer a revised deal. We go until we get a boy. And we'll stop trying at five. So if we have five girls, I'll take that as God's sign. I mean, I figured, you know, with five, we could field a decent basketball team. Um, if they were into, if they were into uh, you know, softball, then, then we'd potentially have a grand slam hitter, even if one struck out. I mean, this is, this is a pretty good deal. And so Sarah agreed to that deal, and she's highly embarrassed that I'm telling this now. She didn't have a chance to hear me practice this last night, <laughs> intentionally. So... Uh, so, so she agreed to that deal, and so we, we started trying. We started trying for baby boy Smith, Smith number three, and things didn't go quite as we had expected. I mean, with the other two, pretty much as soon as we started trying, um, you know, the, the blue line appeared on the pregnancy test, and we were good to go, but it just wasn't happening this time. And uh, so we tried, and, and we tried, and, and it still wasn't happening. So we started asking questions of people who could, you know, answer those questions. And, and so we started with Sarah, and she saw specialists and doctors, and, and everything checked out there, which by process of elimination means the problem was me. But I couldn't, I wouldn't necessarily go for that until I talked to specialists. So I talked to specialists, and they ran tests, and they did their thing. And, and, uh, and sure enough, the results came back. The problem was me. My baby-making years were over. Unless I wanted to have a surgery, and uh, I wasn't really too fond of that idea. The, uh, the truth was, we were living in Illinois at the time, and, and well, I mean, the truth was I wasn't too fond of that idea, but what made it look better was that we lived in Illinois at the time, and a, and a move back to Indiana was pending, and, and, uh, and so I decided, well, there's just too much going on in life right now. We'll just be content with two beautiful, wonderful daughters. And, uh, and so we made that decision, and we grieved the fact that we wouldn't have any more children of our own, and then life moved on. So we moved back to Indiana, and I was youth pastor at a church north of us, and, and uh, one Wednesday night after church, after youth, we were in the basement of, of the house watching TV and snacking, and I was, I was going to town on a box of uh, garden salsa wheat thins. You, you familiar with those? It's the red box, good stuff. And, uh, and not a few minutes in, Sarah looks over at me, and I was sitting to her, to her right. She looks over, and she says, put those things away and don't ever eat them in front of me again. And I'm like, because I'm so tender and compassionate and kind and caring, I looked at her, I said, what, are you pregnant? And just like that, I feel like a jerk. I'm like, oh, we've been battling with this infertility issue, and I can't believe I said that, and man, yes, I'll get rid of the crackers, I'll burn them and never even look at them again in the grocery store if that'll help. I'm such a jerk. And, and you know, that was all in a split second because that's about all it took for Sarah to look at me and say, I've kind of been wondering. And I'm like, well, do we have any pregnancy tests left? Go take one, come on, what are you waiting for? 
And so she did. She went and took a pregnancy test, and you know, 10 minutes or whatever it is later, the little strip appears, and uh, we're like, um, no, the doctor said this can't happen. How can this be? Sure enough, you know, we followed up, and, and sure enough, uh, today, we've got a, an eight-year-old boy wreaking havoc down the hallway. Uh, Zeke was definitely a miracle through and through. Not only was he not supposed to be conceived, uh, but when he was born, he had a hole in his heart and he had some lung issues. And, uh, and so, you know, we live in the, the greatest country on earth and we were able to get medical treatment for him. By, by the time he was one, his cardiologist said, I think he's gonna be okay. Uh, but by the time he was two, his cardiologist said, I don't even wanna see this boy again. He's fine. <laughs> I mean, in a good way. And, uh, and sure enough, uh, we're confident to this day that, that Zeke is a miracle. And Zeke knows he's a miracle. And, uh, and he, likes, he likes the fact that he's a miracle. He likes to hear the story. He'll, he'll say, so, still even at eight, I don't know when this is going to stop, but he'll say, Daddy, tell me the story about the time that you were eating that, that, that thing and it made Mommy sick. Tell me that story. <laughs> and so we talk again about how he was a miracle. And, and he's even been known to try to use his miracle status to get him out of trouble. Like, you can't punish a miracle, baby. Watch me. <laughs> you see, the reality is for Sarah and I, since before we began having children, we purposed, we determined, we made up our minds that we were not going to raise children. We were going to raise adults. Because there's going to come a point, and we've had this conversation many times with our children, even at their, their ages that they are now, we've had this conversation that there will come a point where we're kicking them out of the house. There's a predetermined age and life experience where they're out of there. And Sarah and I would feel horrible if they couldn't make it in society because they were stuck in perpetual childhood or adolescence. So our goal since the day where they were born has, has not been to raise children. It's been to raise adults. Because what society needs isn't more adult-shaped human beings who are stuck in adolescence. What society needs isn't more uh, 30-year-olds who live in mom and dad's basement playing video games and working enough part-time jobs to buy Red Bull and Taco Bell. What society needs are adult-shaped human beings who are adults, who act like adults, who have matured, who have grown up, who are ready to be responsible and do what, what they're supposed to do to play their role in society and be who God has called them to be. The sad reality is, though, that in the church, we don't act like this. The sad reality is that in the church, we're not raising adults, we're raising children. And we've somehow come up with this notion that salvation is enough. That if we can just lead someone to Christ, if we can get them to pray the sinner's prayer, if we can put a rose on the altar and then, and then maybe even baptize them, then, then we're done. Then, then that's enough. That's, that's all we need to do as a church. From there, they ought to be able to figure it out. They ought to be able to go to a Sunday school class or a small group. And, and if they come to Sunday morning regularly like they're supposed to, it'll take care of itself. As a church, we've lost sight of the fact that we're supposed to be raising adults, not children. We tell them things like, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Which is true, but a huge ripoff because we have more responsibility than that. I mean, what parent, what parent would do that to their, to their child? What parent would say, you know what? There's a bottle over there. Go drink it. 
Drink enough of it. Eventually, you'll get some semi-solid food. And in the meantime, please change your own diapers because they get to stinking if you don't. I mean, seriously, who would do that? We do it all the time in the church. Go feed yourself. Go find, go find some way to, to nourish yourself. What, 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 <laughs> what parent of an adolescent would in their right mind say, here's the keys, teach yourself how to drive so you can get a job and start supporting yourself? I mean, come on! Not only putting them at risk, but everyone else on the road, and yet in the church we do the very same thing. We bring people only so far, and then we stop and we let them go. This is a travesty. This is not who we're called to be as a church. This is not what we are called to do. So what we're going to do over the course of this, uh, the next few weeks here, is we're going to walk through this series called Grow Up. The idea is that we need to do more than introduce people to Christ and let them go. The idea is that there's, there's uh, stages, there's stages of development, there's growth that we grow through on our way to spiritual maturity. And as a church, as believers and followers of Christ, we need to be concerned and aware and helping people to grow through those stages. So the way we're going to look at this is, uh, is by asking this question every week. My hope is that you'll come not just to hear a sermon, that you'll come not just to hear what somebody else needs, but that you'll come ultimately every time we open God's word to say, speak to me, Lord. And so I want to lead us every week in asking this question, am I, am I, am I growing up? Am I growing up? Or have I, have I stalled out somewhere? Am I maturing in my relationship with Jesus or am I stuck somewhere along the road and, 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 and can't figure out how to move past it? We're going we're to help you move past it if you're stuck. Am I where I need to be? Am I where I should be? How, what steps do I need to take to continue growing up so that I'm not a, a, a spiritual adult or a spiritual child in the body of a spiritual adult? What evidence is there that I am growing up? And here's, here's the key. I'm just going to give you a sneak peek into the last few weeks of this series. The key to know whether or not you are maturing in Christ is how much concern you have for those who are earlier on in the process. The key to being a mature follower of Christ is how much concern, not just emotion, but action you have for those who are earlier in the process than you. The Bible says a lot about this idea of spiritual growth. Matter of fact, we can take plenty of cues from the Bible that says that Christianity is about say a prayer and and you're done. It isn't a one and done deal. Christianity is a constant relationship with spiritual growth. On the front of your notes there, uh, you have some verses. I want you to, to follow along. You need to catch this. You need to understand that the Bible isn't blind to the reality of our condition. And so just follow along these verses with me. Galatians 4, Paul writes, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of, circle this word, childbirth. You're going to see various terms here throughout these verses that we read that indicate that there is a growth process that's supposed to happen. I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is forming you. He writes to the church at Corinth, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere, circle this word, infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for solid food. Last week, uh, Pastor Joe, District Superintendent Joe Winger, read this verse from Ephesians 4. 
Then we will no longer be infants. There it is again, the sense that we all start out young, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by cunning and the craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. That's a pretty good description of what it means to be a babe in Christ. 1 Corinthians 14. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. Circle that word. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. So we're already getting the sense that in Scripture there's this range of spiritual maturity, of spiritual development and growth. In 1 John, uh, John the Apostle writes, I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, um, your version may say, men or older men or adults, circle that, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young adults, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you've overcome the evil one. And so here John writes, and there's a sense that even in a body of believers, there's a range of spiritual development. There are those who are new, those who have grown up some and are in what we might call spiritual adolescence, and then there's those who are certainly mature. And one last verse here before we move on, Hebrews 5. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant, there's another word you can circle, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, circle that, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So being a follower of Christ, being a Christian, requires growing up. It's a constant maturation process. And this whole thing starts with new birth. One of my greatest concerns for not only our church, but certainly for our church, is that we may have people in our classes, in our small groups, in our ministries, in our pews this morning who think that they're a follower of Christ because they've come to church for years, because they've served, because they've been in classes, when the reality is they've never begun a relationship with Jesus Christ. They think they're a Christian because they're religious, but the reality is they're not in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's not just an abstract fear that I'm making up. Again, this is biblical. We see this happen in the Bible. And you'll notice it as we start today's passage in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, I'm going to start reading at verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So we hear we're introduced to this character, Nicodemus, who's a prime example of what I'm concerned about. People who are religious, who know what to say, who know what to do, who know how to act, but when it comes right down to it, don't know Jesus Christ. Nicodemus was so religious that he had become a religious leader. We might say he was a a church board member, a Sunday school teacher, or a small group leader. This is who Nicodemus was. He's a prime example of someone who who knew all the rules and yet didn't know the rule maker. When it came right down to it, he was lost. As a matter of fact, John tells us he was a Pharisee. Some of you know that a, a Pharisee was a group of religious people who were angry 
with Jesus. And this is our first mark of people who are far from Christ. They are angry with Jesus or with God or with Christians or with the church or you know whatever you want to lump in there. This continues to be a mark of those who are far from Christ. They're, they're angry with religion and with God and with Christ and the church. And, and you, hear him, you, you hear him say things like, you know, God is just a crutch for the weak. He's an opiate for the masses. You, you, you hear him say things like, Christians are homophobic, racist, uneducated, bigots. Which at times, I suppose we give him reasons to say that. Or, or you know, maybe things like, I, I'm not a Christian because Christians are responsible for all the wars in, in world history. I mean, the reality is that people who are far from Christ today still tend to be angry. And it's not just people who, uh, who are clearly pagans. I read all kinds of blogs and, and Christian newsreels. And, and from time to time, it, it just I, I read a blog by a person who I think is trying to call the church to a higher standard. But they end up railing on Christians in the church. And, and I get done reading and I go... They seem pretty angry towards the church, towards God. Do they really know Christ? Even though they profess to be a Christian. Nicodemus, the Pharisees were so angry that that, uh, they wanted nothing to do with Jesus as as a whole, as a group. The only thing they wanted to do with Jesus was to get rid of him, to get him off the scene. And, uh, And their fear, their anger was so strong that that Nicodemus couldn't even come to Jesus and open. He had to do it secretively. Look at verse 2. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you were doing if God were not with him. I I think you got, right off the bat, you have to give Nicodemus credit because he understood there's more to Jesus than meets the eye. And yet he fell into the trap that Jesus constantly criticized the crowds for through the Gospels. Jesus was always to the crowds like, hey, you just came for the show, not for new life. You just want to see another miracle. You want to see someone else healed. You want to see a, a crowd fed. That's exactly what Nicodemus does here. He, 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 he demonstrates that he's ignorant or confused about Jesus, which is still true today. People who aren't in a relationship with Jesus Christ remain confused about Jesus, about faith, church, God, the Bible. I'm just lumping it all in there. They're, they're just generally confused about it. And again, you can, you can hear this in the way they talk and the things they say. You know, b- people think there's, there's many ways to get to God. That, that if you take all the world religions, all the major world religions, they all end up at the same place. It's just a different path to get there. Man, you want to talk about confusion. You know, good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell, so I'm just going to do more good things than I do bad. And you're going, oh man, you're confused, you're wrong, you don't understand. Uh, we, we see this in, even in the church, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere, as long as you really feel like that's true, then we, we really can't tell you you're wrong. Or, uh, or, you know what, God is a God of grace. He'll forgive me for this. These things all demonstrate that someone's confused and don't understand their warning flags, that they're far from Christ, that even, even if they're religious, that they don't know the Savior. And, uh, and Jesus picks up on the fact that Nicodemus is confused, but notice he doesn't cut the conversation. He doesn't say, man, get it right, and, and just come back when you've got it right. 
He realized that there's some confusion, but that there's something sincere happening. So Jesus continues the conversation. Verse 3, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And I don't know about you, but man, that clears up all the confusion for me. It did for Nicodemus too. Look at verse 4. How could someone be born again when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And all the women said, ouch. (laughs) If you thought Nicodemus was confused before, imagine what he's like now. But the more I read this, the more I wonder if there's something more than confusion happening here. I mean, it is a little perhaps confusing to use this language, at least uh, it would seem that way, but, but I think maybe there's more going on the confusion. I think there's a sense in which Nicodemus is saying, what? You want, me to, you want me to start over? Don't you understand I'm a religious leader? Like, I mean, I have come here every Sunday. The doors have been open. And if you knew what I put in the offering plate, and I used to teach the biggest Sunday school class in this church, and oh, let me tell you about my small group. Man, everybody wanted in that thing. And do you know the, do you know the outreaches I've been part of and the mission trips I've gone on? Do you know that I even got a Bible degree from a local college? And you're telling me to start over? You're telling me I've missed it, that it's not true? Nicodemus had this sense that, that he could be good enough that he could check off things on a religious checklist and that would please God enough. And the, the scary part is that this is enticing for all of us. This is, this is enticing for... I, I've read some of your Facebook feeds, okay? I know that we all have the tendency to post the good things that we're doing on Facebook for everyone to see. I all know that we have this proverbial tendency when the plate passes to make sure everyone sees what we're putting in the offering plate. Okay, I get it. We all have this tendency. People who are far from Christ, who don't really have a relationship with Jesus Christ, have this sense that they can be good enough, that, that, that salvation comes through doing more and more and better and better stuff, not by faith through God's grace alone. Jesus has a different understanding about what it means to follow Christ. And so listen to how he responds to Nicodemus, verse 5. Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of the water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit, God's Spirit, gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Holy Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. Verse 10, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you, excuse me, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? And you can almost hear Nicodemus' doubt dripping off the pages. How can this be? How does this work? That doesn't make any sense. I don't get it. It's not just that he's confused. It's that with further explanation, he doesn't understand. He can't understand. Because he's spiritually blind. 
Jesus says, how do you not get this? How do you not get this? You've got a Bible degree. You've been doing this professionally for years, and you still don't understand what I'm saying to you? It's not that he didn't want to. It's that he couldn't understand. He was spiritually blind. There was something that was, that was blocking his eyes, that was blocking his ears, that wouldn't allow his mind, his heart, to process what Jesus was saying. Some things can only be grasped, can only be understood with the help of the Holy Spirit. And friends, sometimes when you share the gospel with a lost believer, uh, when you, you spend time and days and weeks and months and years pouring into them and you have that opportunity to share the gospel and they just look at you with glossed over eyes and a blank stare, it's not necessarily because you dropped the ball. The reality is no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws them. There's some things that only can be understood with the help of the Holy Spirit. And just like Nicodemus, I fear, I believe that this continues to be true in, in our church and, and maybe in our partner churches. There's people among us who cannot understand because they are not followers of Christ. The Holy Spirit hasn't worked in them. They've been coming here. We think they're believers. We nominate them for, for responsibilities, for leadership. We look to them for, for advice and guidance, but, but heaven forbid, maybe, there's religious lost among us who, who don't know that they're lost. I don't, I don't say that to condemn anyone. I don't say that with anyone in mind. I say that with a very heavy heart because we have a responsibility to help them experience new life, to do everything we can. And so how do we do that? How do we help the lost encounter Jesus. Let me just offer five, uh, five truths, I believe, that come out of this encounter that Nicodemus had with Jesus. First of all, they need a safe relationship with a mature believer. They need a safe relationship with a mature believer. Let me ask you a question. When did Nicodemus come to Jesus? It's right there in verse 1. At night. That's right, at night. You know, for, I don't know, for centuries, Preachers and theologians have made a lot of those two words, those two English words, that, that Nicodemus came at night. I don't think it's that complicated. Why do you think Nicodemus came to Jesus at night? Yeah, because everybody knows that if there's something you don't want to get caught doing, you do it when it's dark out. That's why we used to go TPing after dark, right? Because not only do you look stupid at noon throwing toilet paper into trees, but there's a good chance you're going to get caught. Can I get an amen, Kelly? <laughs> Nicodemus came at night because he knew there was going to be trouble in going to Jesus. He was, after all, a Pharisee. He was supposed to hate this man. Where do you think Nicodemus' fear was coming from? Why was he afraid? Why did he go at night? Why was he afraid? Say what? Yeah, because, of the, because he was a Pharisee, because, because of the people he hung out with, because of his identity. He, he was afraid that he would be rejected, that he would be kicked out, that, that he'd be excommunicated. And this was, a, this was a strong fear for Nicodemus, but I want you to notice something. 
in spite of the reality that he could have been excommunicated as a Pharisee, I'll use the word excommunicated, that everything he's ever known in life could have been taken away, in spite of that fear, what did he do? He went to Jesus. You know what that tells me? That even though he was afraid of what others would say, he was 100% confident that Jesus would not reject him. He was 100% confident that he could go to Jesus with his questions and find what he needed. Can I tell you my fear today for the church, for Christians, is that we're the exact opposite. That people are 100% confident that when they come to us, it's not acceptance they're going to find. It's not a relationship. But it's jeering and mocking and yelling and screaming. Again, I've read your Facebook feeds. I've heard what you said about the other political party. I've watched how you interact with, and I'm, I'm part of you. I've, I've watched how we interact with people who struggle with their sexuality. Oh, that we'd be more like Jesus. Oh, that we'd be more like, bear with me here, a three-toed sloth. Are you familiar with these animals? Okay, we put one on the screen. I mean, isn't it like, look at its face. Isn't it so adorable? And then look at those things under its chin. Those are its claws. Those are a th- those suckers are huge and they're sharp. And not only do they have sharp claws, but they have such muscle strength that sloths have been known to die in a bra- hanging off a branch. This is a branch they're hanging off. They've been known to die and stay there because their claws are so far dug in and their grip is so tight that even in death, There's no letting go. So in spite of this, would you believe that sloths are popular pets? I mean, these are just three pictures. There's thousands of pictures on Google of people cuddling sloths. I mean, like, I'd be freaking out like this girl in the middle, obviously a baby sloth with no claws yet, but around her. But look at this one on my left in the pink shirt. Can you see the claws on her back? And yet sloths, although they've got incredible muscle strength and scary claws, they make good pets because they move so slow. As a matter of fact, sloths move so slowly that algae grows on their fur. I know, which is gross. I suppose if it's a pet, you're going to have to take care of it. But still, do you get what I'm saying? Incredible strength, incredible claws, but can't hurt a fly. Because they're slow, so slow to respond to anything. Unfortunately, I think we're sometimes more like porcupines. Do you know that porcupines are covered in over 30,000 quills? And that porcupine quills can grow to be a foot long? I mean, these things are dangerous. Matter of fact, quills are so, these porcupine pills are so dangerous that God has built into the porcupine, into the quill on the end, an antibiotic antiseptic. So that if they stick themselves or stick their mate or stick someone they didn't mean to, they're not going to get infected and die. And of course, porcupines can shoot their quills and any sign of danger like this, like this cheetah and, uh, and, and the quills come out. I looked, I looked, I could not find a single picture on Google of somebody cuddling with a porcupine. I looked, I'm telling you, I looked, I couldn't find it. 
This makes me wonder, what if we, as followers of Christ, were to be like sloths? What if we were so slow to respond to antagonism, to the things about culture and our world that scare us and ought to, to things that go against the grain of who we are in Christ and ought to? What if we used our claws and our incredible strength to to grab onto God's word and the truth there and, and refuse to let go no matter how ugly things get and also refuse to quill those who don't believe the same that we do, who are perhaps looking, searching for an answer and trying all kinds of avenues that aren't going to work. What if we were more like Jesus and we allowed people to come to us? We got close to people who aren't like us, who scare us, who are far from Christ. You see, Nicodemus knew that when he came to Jesus, Jesus wasn't going to let go of his convictions. He knew he wasn't going to water down the truth. He knew that Jesus was going to be truth and tell him the truth. But he also knew that it wouldn't be porcupine quills coming at him. He knew that he would be accepted, that his questions would be answered, that it would be challenged, but it would be in a way that he could hear and he could accept. Friends, I believe we see fewer new believers because we don't know how to have a relationship with them. We don't know how to engage them on their terms in a way that brings them along. Not only do they need you know, relationships with mature believers, but they need answers to their questions. They need answers to their questions. Do you notice in these verses that Nicodemus asks twice as many questions as he makes statements? I mean, there's so much that Nicodemus didn't understand. Like I said, that he couldn't understand. And this is a biblical truth. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the person without the Spirit of God does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and can't understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The reality is there are those who are far from Christ, who are spiritually dead, who have questions and need answers. And you've probably heard questions like this. How could an all-good God allow so much evil in the world? How can you believe in a book that's thousands of years old, written in different languages? I mean, you're telling me that God's creator, but science just says that that everything came through evolution. And we could could go on and on. It even gets personal. Well, what about that church? Or or what about that Christian who who did this to me and and my family? What, What about that, huh? There's so many hypocrites in the church. What are we gonna do about that. What about the Mormons or the Jehovah Witnesses or the Buddhists? Or, I mean, they're all, they're all doing good things. So why do you think that you're the only way? Everybody's questions are different, but everybody has questions. And listen, the reality is when someone's far from Christ, more times than not, it's not about the answer. More times than not, it's about one Someone took them seriously and heard them and was willing to engage them in finding the answers. And two, that they know that there are other people who have wrestled with these same questions and who have reconciled them, who found the answers, the explanations they need in order to begin a life of faith. Jesus began to answer Nicodemus' questions. As a matter of fact, verse 14, Jesus did it in a way that, that Nicodemus could understand. He said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, you're going, I don't get it. What's that have to do with the price of tea in China? That's fine. Nicodemus understood. 
He knew this story. This was a big, far, big part of his faith tradition. Lost people today still need their questions answered. Number three, they need an explanation of the gospel. You probably know this verse. If so, say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Jesus laid the gospel out for Nicodemus and lost people still need to hear the gospel, not just to see it, that, that nice little quote about go and preach the gospel and use words if necessary, that's nice and warm and fuzzy, but people need to hear the gospel. Faith comes from hearing the word of God. And when Jesus told Nicodemus the gospel, where did he start? He started with God loves you. God loves you so much. When he turns on his iPhone, it's your picture on his screen. It's a collage of you on his computer wallpaper. When he gets drink out of the fridge, guess whose picture's hanging there? That's how much God loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his only son to die for you because the reality is God loves you, but he also knows how messed up you are. He knows how messed up all of us are. He understands this thing called sin that we're plagued by, that no matter how hard we try, we can't do the right thing for the wrong reasons. Sometimes we'll do the right thing for the wrong reasons, and that's sin. Sometimes we do the wrong thing for the right reasons, but we did the wrong thing, and we still sinned. And God gets it. But he loves you so much, he made a way out of it. He made a way for you to be forgiven. And not just forgiven, but to live, in a, live a life in a relationship with him that pleases him. That although you still have a tendency to do wrong, you continue to grow and mature. And the spirit lives in you and that tendency becomes less and less. God loves you and he's made a way for you to be forgiven. He's made a way for you to move from being an enemy of God to being a child of God to being a subject of God's wrath, to being his friend. And this is where Jesus started with Nicodemus. And so why wouldn't we start there? Why wouldn't we start with God loves you and he understands that you're struggling with your sexuality? He understands that you don't know if you're a boy or a girl. He understands that you don't know who to love, who to like. He understands the pain of that abortion you had when you were younger. And he still loves you. And he's made a way for you to be healed and whole and to find freedom and to realize who you are in him. Friends, it doesn't have to be complicated, but it can't start with a barb. God loves you and he's made a way. Number four, they need an invitation to receive Jesus. The reality is we don't, typically come to Christ unless one invites us to. After we've shared the gospel and lived the gospel and we're in relationship with them and we've been working to answer their questions, at some point, we just need to ask, would you like to become a Christian? I mean, 
no salesman sells a trailer if he doesn't ask, would you like to buy a trailer? When I worked at Apple, I could tell them everything about how cool the computers were, but they'd walk out of the store if I didn't say, would you like to buy one? Now, don't get me wrong. We're not selling Christianity. But people aren't going to follow Christ if there's not an invitation. And I wonder how many people are here today. I wonder if there are any people here today who have never been invited to follow Christ. They've never been invited for the first time to put their trust in Christ. Or they've never heard someone say, you've been away, but you can come back. You can follow Christ. You can pray. You can receive him and be a follower of Christ. And if that's you, if you're saying, you know what, no one's ever invited me, but I, I think this is my time. In just a moment here after I wrap up with number, point number five, I'm going to invite you to pray with us to receive Christ. And then after you've done that, I'm going to ask you to talk to me or to whoever brought you or, or someone who looks like maybe they're friendly, more like a sloth than a porcupine, and tell them what you did today. Because we want to walk with you. We want to stand with you. We're not going to say there's a bottle, feed yourself and change your diapers. We want to walk this journey with you. Number four, they need an invitation to receive Jesus. And number five, they need prayer. Lots of it. Friends, the reality is that someone meeting and following Christ always begins with God. God's always the first mover. And our part in that is prayer. And some of you get this. You've been praying for, for years, for decades, for lost friends and family members who don't know Christ and, and don't seem to have made any move towards him. But keep praying. Keep praying. Keep knocking on the doors of heaven. Keep prevailing against what's happening and believe that God will move. Keep praying that God would move people and events across their paths that would lead them to understand they have no hope but Jesus Christ. That they'll hit rock bottom as hard and painful and ugly as that may be for them and for you. Keep praying that God would move in their lives. And as we're praying for lost people, let's not just pray for lost people, but let's pray for us, that we would be who they need us to be. That as individuals and as a church, we would be the kind of people that lost people would say, I got questions. I don't get it. You know, I've been coming here for quite a while, but there's still some things I'm just not sure about. Let's pray for us that we would be that kind of people. And let's pray for our church that even when it seems like it'd be easier to give up and quit, that we'd keep praying. Some of you have lost loved ones you're praying for. And uh, I'd like to close the service today by, as a body, together praying for them. I, if you'd like to move to the front, you can. We've got the kneeling rails. You can also kneel at the, at the front pews. By all means, you don't have to move to the front to be heard by God. But uh, I'd like to take the next few moments as we close and, and pray. And like I said a few minutes ago, some of you here have never been extended an invitation to follow Jesus and, and something inside of you is stirring. Maybe you don't have all your questions answered, but you just know in your heart that there's something true here. 
Your heart is strangely warmed and you can't avoid it. You can't deny it. I'd like to invite you as I begin praying today, I'm gonna pray what we've come to call a sinner's prayer. It's just words that you can, you can put into your own words and begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to come as we pray, please do that now. And we're gonna pray.